Well, I was planning on taking the first, like, ten minutes of my sermon to talk about great West Virginia victory yesterday. <laughs> but if y'all kept up with college football, you know that fell apart in the fourth quarter there. So I'm, I'm heavy heart this morning, a little bit sad. I, for real, I had my, my gold and yellow tie picked out. I was going to be representing the school colors. It was going to be great, but alas. All right, Mark. Chapter 4, verses 26 through 34 this morning. If you're new to the valley or just new to Rockfish, what we like to do here is work through books of the Bible and try to get a sense of what God has said to us there. And we've seen in Mark from chapter 1, verse 1, that he writes to the end of persuading us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark writes with the hope that the reader, that's you and me, would repent of our sins and follow Jesus. And in the section that we find ourselves in Mark today consists of two tiny parables, right? And uh, the section we looked at last week was two other parables, and all four parables go together to make the section of verses 1 through 34 of chapter 4. Since we're talking about parables, I feel that I ought remind you that parables provide insight into the kingdom of God and are by design both provocative and surprising. They're used to stimulate our thinking and to cause the hearer, again, that's you and me, to contemplate what it is they're hearing. Parables will reveal more truth to those that have receptive ears, and they'll hide truth from those that reject the truth, that have less receptive ears. Remember also that parables are not meant to be sentimental. They're not meant to be gushy or heartwarming, but soul-shaking. They're not meant to be on a flannel graph or kind of like this kitty thing. They're supposed to break our worlds apart a little bit. When Jesus is teaching in parables, people aren't sitting there going, Oh, how sweet. He's not doing a public reading of chicken soup for the soul. He's not sharing some fortune cookie wisdom. But as Matthew says it, Jesus is uttering what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And so we come to verses 26 and 34 in our two parables today. The theme of all four of the parables in this section of chapter 4 is that the kingdom of God is emerging and it's growing with the appearance of Jesus of Nazareth, who has come to give his life as a ransom for many. And so with these two parables in particular, I want to offer to you the one big thing this morning, or that one truth that I want you to contemplate throughout the week, and that is this, that the kingdom of God grows and triumphs. The kingdom of God grows and triumphs. We're going to work through the text in three parts, the growth of the kingdom, the triumph of the kingdom, and the language of the kingdom. Growth of the kingdom, triumph of the kingdom, language of the kingdom. Let's pray before we get started. Lord Jesus, we often struggle with how to pray, with how to, to find the right words to communicate with you, and we thank you that your Holy Spirit kind of fills up the gap, that it that you pray with us and, and for us, that your Holy Spirit makes us acceptable, it makes our imperfect prayers and our unpredictable emotions understandable. We thank you that you understand us even when we, we don't quite understand ourselves. And Lord, we, we pray together now that you would make clear to us the secret of your kingdom, that you would give us the gift of hearing, the gift of faith. Help us to hear your word this morning. Amen. 
All right, verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Jesus is telling this parable against the backdrop of proclaiming in verse 15 of chapter 1 that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so I think we should read Jesus' statement here. We should read the parable here in light of his statement there, in light of all the people who heard it. See, the Jewish people that are around right now, the Jewish folks that are present, are likely thinking, The kingdom of God is here. The time is fulfilled. That means that the one that's greater than King David is here. They're expecting, they're anticipating a king. They almost certainly see the prospect of political revolution and national restoration. After all, the Messiah who is to come, that's spoken of in Isaiah, is going to have the government upon his shoulder. And of his rule, there'll be no end. Consequently, when the Jewish people around think of the kingdom, they think political revolution, national restoration. Their expectation is that Jesus would lead some type of military conquest in order to establish his kingdom. Jesus' disciples even thought this. They thought the kingdom revolution would come with a sword, but that's not how the revolution came. And Jesus rebuked those that would try to bring it with physical violence. Put your sword into its sheath, he tells Peter. I think like those around Jesus here, we often have uh, false expectations. That we think that we know how God's kingdom will grow. We think we know how we can cause the gospel to flourish. How we can strengthen our, our churches. We expect the gospel will flourish and our churches will mature as the result of conquests in the form of clever planning or new programs or innovative strategies. Uh, We come up with these nice, neat formulas of success. Maybe some of them will will sound familiar to you. I've I've got a little list here. Hey, if we get a cool enough youth program, then, then the church will grow. If we have a more trendy service and a coffee bar, then we'll get some, some more hipsters, some more guys with skinny jeans will show up and the church will, will grow. If we play more contemporary music and get a fog machine, then the church will grow. If the service is shorter and has more music and less preaching, then our church will grow. If we do this or that particular Bible study, then our members will instantaneously be more mature. If we do the right stuff in the right order, in the right way, at the right time, then the church will grow. Then we we create a a matrix of pragmatic systems to put these formulas into. For example, we say, the best strategy to reach the culture is to reach those that make the culture. Thus, what's most practical is to win the wealthy, the politicians, celebrities, athletes, and popular musicians to Christ. And then there'll be this kind of trickle-down effect as they influence the rest of the culture. And there'll be a great kingdom expansion. Be a great explosion of the gospel. I don't want to suggest that we don't want to reach all kinds of people everywhere with the gospel. We, we do. We want to reach everyone with the good news of Jesus Christ. But, 
But this type of sociological prejudice misses the tone of Jesus's ministry, which was largely on the outskirts among people on the fringes of society. Jesus is specifically targeting over and over again the forsaken, the weak. He intentionally selects the foolish. Because the gospel cannot be reduced to a nice, neat set of formulas for success. The so-called right programs can do nothing to grow the kingdom of God. And he said the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. How growth occurs is a mystery, but growth is certain. Jesus builds his church not through entrepreneurial ideas or clever strategies, but through his gospel. And this disturbs us a little bit. It drives us a little crazy because, by golly, we want to make things happen. How do we win people to Christ? How do we make them grow? Scatter the seed, we're told. How does it take root? How does it grow in people's lives? Shrug. Our role in the kingdom is sowing, shrugging, sleeping, and waiting. We know not how it grows. So why why sow the seed? You were with us last week, we know that the seed represents the word of God and the kingdom of God. And so we sow because the seed is God's word. And as our Lord sowed, so too should we. We're to proclaim the gospel. We're to share our faith out of obedience to the command of God. Because Jesus is our joy. It's not out of obligatory obedience going, God will accept me if I do X, Y, and Z. No, that's not the gospel. We obey because it's our joy. We're accepted in Christ because we've placed our faith in him. And therefore, we obey. Therefore, we go and tell others around us about the great joy of knowing Jesus. Friends, we ought to gossip the gospel. That ought to be what's in our minds and in our hearts. You know, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what do you talk about the most? It's probably going to reveal what you love the most. We share our faith because Jesus is our joy. Well, what what qualifies us to do this sowing? What qualifies us to share the gospel? And I think that's the simple, simplest qualification ever. It's because we have the seed. It's because we have the seed. Because we know the truth of the gospel, because we know Jesus, we are qualified and commissioned to scatter. This means, hear me now, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, that you are immediately able to and responsible for scattering or sharing your faith. If you're in Christ, you are able to and responsible for sharing Jesus with others. Now, if you're not sure how to do that or you want to figure out how to do it in a more constructive way, that's that's part of my job. That's what I'm here to do is to help equip you for the work of ministry. And so uh, tonight at six o'clock, if you want to learn how to share your faith, uh, you can come come back here and uh, we'll do a short training session, half an hour, an hour. And, and I'll walk you through uh, some simple ways where you can share your story with others and help show them how their story fits into to God's story. I want to help you do that. Because we're commanded to do it. And it's our joy to share our faith. 
even though it can be a little scary. It's an important part of the Christian life. What else do we do aside from sharing our faith? Simply nothing, right? Look at the parable. Apart from sowing, the only human activity in the parable is waiting in faith, confident of a harvest to come. Sow and wait. I mean, waiting in faith is not always easy, though, is it? It's hard sometimes when you pray and scatter, 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 and nothing seems to be happening. I think we all are. Maybe, maybe just me, I don't know. I, I am. Often like a, the young kid who goes out early in the morning and uh, tills up the ground a little bit and puts some, some seeds in there and pats it down and then returns it at noon and sees, hey, there's nothing growing and goes away for a little bit, comes back in the afternoon, nothing growing. And then at midnight, wakes up from sleep, looks out the window, says, nothing's growing. These seeds must be defective. Nothing's happening. Indeed, from the outside, it appears that nothing is happening, but beneath the soil, there's growth. I think James is helpful here. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Waiting is hard. Perseverance is hard. Endurance and the task of ministry is hard, especially when it seems like nothing is happening. But faithfully, faithfully sharing our faith can be frustrating. It can be disappointing. And the work of the Lord can even seem futile. It can lead us to asking questions like, why even continue? Some of you might be familiar with William Carey. He's been called the father of the modern missions movement. And uh, what you might not know about him is that he served and worked in India for seven years before seeing his first convert. So he sowed the seed for seven years before he was able to harvest anything. Still, at the end of his 40-year ministry, after seeing very minimal fruit, He said these words, the future is as bright as the promise of God. And expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. I think Carrie and many others like him were able to endure in faithful ministry. They were able to keep scattering because they trusted that the seed would grow. Because they knew that the kingdom of God is not contingent or dependent upon any human activity. They knew they weren't responsible for the seed's growth, but only for scattering it faithfully. They knew that the power for the seed to sprout and grow was not in man, but within the seed itself. The faith that Jesus requires of true disciples is to scatter the seed, to sleep and rise in humble confidence that God has invaded our troubled world. Not with a crusade, not with the sword, but with the seed of his word and his death on a cross. Confident that these will grow into a fruitful harvest. The power for growth and change is in the seed. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Friends, we cannot generate a move of God. Otherwise, it would be called a move of us. 
No human being, no matter how persuasive, no matter how clever, makes a contribution to regeneration, conversion, or justification. All we can do is preach the truth, scatter the seed. We can't change hearts, and we can't produce life from dead people. That's something God alone does. No man comes to me unless the Father draws him, Jesus says. And once the Father begins to draw a man or a woman, then it's the blade, then it's the ear, then it's the full grain. It needs to be drummed into the heads, into the hearts of all Christians and anybody else that's been seduced by contemporary lies that if we just get better at marketing the gospel, that we can become more convincing and we can convince people to be saved. It's not true. The only thing we can do is tell the truth. It's not about mood. It's not about music. It's not about invitations. It's not about any human effort. We don't do God's work with human means. It's about the seed. It's about the work of God. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you have believed and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God gives the increase. Life and growth are a divine operation. The kingdom of God grows. The gospel flourishes according to the divine work of God in the proclamation of his word. I love what Luther has said about this. Uh, he was speaking in relation to the Reformation. He said this, all I have done is to put forth Preach and write the word of God. And apart from this, I have done nothing. While I've been sleeping or drinking Wittenberg beer with my friend Philip and with Amsdorf, it is the word that has done great things. I have done nothing. The word has done and achieved everything. Jared Wilson is right when he says in his book, The Storytelling God, it's not my job or anyone else in the church's job to make stuff happen. It's our job to scatter the seed, to nurture the seed, to work hard at sowing the seed, and then to pray and love and laugh and rest while the Spirit does His job in the gospel. The grain will grow ripe in God's timing. And we ought not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So friends, I say to you this morning, scatter gospel seeds and sleep. And sleep well, knowing that the success of the gospel depends not on you, but on God. The kingdom of God grows and it will triumph. Look with me at verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? Jesus' words here are intentionally echoing a passage in Isaiah chapter 40, which is about a fresh vision of God coming to rescue his people after a time of devastation. Jesus is is giving a, a fresh picture of the kingdom. In other words, even though it appears that nothing is happening, Jesus is making sure everybody knows that God is not powerlessly doing nothing, but he is working in their midst kingdom of God, what shall we compare it to? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of seeds on the earth. And for those botanists out there shouting, but the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the earth. It's not the point. Jesus' parables, they're not scientific treaties. They're stories, they're analogies, they're parallels employing figures of speech 
No, the mustard seed is not actually the tiniest of seeds, but it stands for something proverbially small during the time of Jesus. And I would argue even today, the mustard seed is really, really small. That's the point. Kind of like when people, when Elliot was first born, people would come up and say, oh, he has the tiniest little hands. They weren't trying to say that Elliot had literally the tiniest hands they'd ever seen in all their life, and that he had the smallest hands in the world. Their point was to just say, hey, his, his hands are really small. Same thing here. So what shall we compare the kingdom of heaven to? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The point here is it's fairly simple. Really big things can come from really small things. The seemingly insignificant can blossom into the unimaginable. Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God, may have small beginnings, but it will be huge in the end. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is. We see little things become big things all the time, don't we? For example, go for a little while without changing the oil in your car. And this little thing will become a, a big thing. Or maybe if you're like me and you were in college and you weren't the best steward of your money, maybe you forget to put some, some cash in your checking account and it's past midnight and you're hungry and so you, you go out and you buy a $5 sandwich and wake up the next morning to those bank fees that they give you when you overcharge your account. And that $5 sandwich all of a sudden is a $40 sandwich. Little thing becomes a big thing. Maybe more positively, you can think about it. Maybe you invested in a tiny little company called Apple in the early 90s for six or seven bucks a share and then watched it skyrocket to where it is today. Or lastly, uh, when I was a kid, they had these. I don't know if they have them anymore. These little sponge-like things. And what we did was you got like an empty two-liter bottle of soda and you'd fill it with water and then you would plunge these little guys in there. And like you'd go to sleep and then wake up in the morning and they have consumed the whole inside of the bottle. They'd blown up. I don't, I don't know what those are called. Anyhow, the, the point is, is that the, the, the kingdom is growing. It seems small, but its growth is exponential and unbelievable. The kingdom is growing steadily from inescapable, or from, sorry, from insignificant to inescapable. That which no one would imagine, or if one did, would seem utterly impossible. It's going to grow and will loom large in time. God's reign will not only be more real than the world can imagine, but it will also be larger and more encompassing. It will be the prevailing kingdom. Many nations will rise and fall, but they are comparatively, as the prophet says, a drop in the bucket. The kingdom of God will be larger than any other kingdom and the birds will rest in its shade. The reference to birds nesting in its shade is taken straight out of Ezekiel chapter 17. And in Ezekiel 17, you have this messianic prophecy that says under the rule of the Messiah, nations will come to salvation and the nations are pictured as birds coming to lodge in the tree of blessing. And so that's, it's just borrowed right out of the imagery. The birds are representative of the nations and other words. This kingdom of God is going to expand and not only Israel will be a part of its coming kingdom, but the nations of the world also will be part of it. 
Jesus is asserting that all peoples of the world are going to be in his kingdom and find rest in his shade. The scope and the power of the gospel here ought to thrill us and encourage us. The kingdom will prevail. The city of God will triumph over evil. The kingdom is growing as it should. So fear not. Be not dismayed or discouraged. For eventually it will offer shade to the whole world. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. I think these verses show us a a few things about parables. First, we learn that Jesus taught in many parables. And so we see that Mark has chosen just a, a selection or a sampling of the parables for us. We're just getting a taste, if you will. Secondly, we see that Jesus teaches in a way that's understandable so that those that are listening to Jesus uh, probably say something along the lines of, I I get that. That makes sense. I wonder what he really means by it. And lastly, we see that Jesus gives further explanation of the parables to his disciples. And this last point is once again spotlighting the theme of this section Parables enlighten or obscure depending on the ability to hear. Those who really hear the parables and receive the words of Jesus will be given more. While those that listen but do not hear lose even what they have. If you remember verse 25 from last week, you can just drop back down over there. It's the same concept here. For the one who has more will be given and from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. The one who doesn't hear has the words of Jesus go in one ear and out the other. But the true disciple hears his words and keeps them. The condition of a person's heart is what will dictate how they hear. Like the good soil, true disciples receive the word and it grows healthily in them. Like the other three soils, those outside of God's kingdom remain so. Because they, like the other soils, reject his word and do not allow it to grow in them. This ties right back into verses 10 through 12 from last week. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus words confirm the state of people's hearts. Hearing determines whether one is an insider or an outsider. It's this all-important first step that leads to fellowship with Jesus, where fuller understanding becomes possible. When he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Only in association with Jesus can one learn to understand the language of God. If you're a believer, you you speak God's language. When he speaks, you you understand it. It's a foreign language to everybody else. The secret to understanding the language of God, it can't be learned or purchased. It must be given to you, true disciples, those inside, those that have heard and believed, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. What's the secret, you ask? The secret is that the kingdom has come in the person, words, and works of Jesus. This is not easily seen. Because Jesus is a king, but he's a veiled king. After all, kings have have crowns, right? 
but Jesus doesn't wear a crown. Kings, they have palaces, but, but Jesus has no palace. He has no place to lay his head. Kings, they have guys that protect them. They have king's guard, but Jesus has no king's guard. He has some, some fishermen hanging out. No, the only way that someone can recognize this kingdom and Jesus' kingship is by faith. Only faith would, could, and can recognize Jesus as the Son of God and the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And faith comes from hearing. And so the word gives ears to hear the word. And the more you hear, the more you get, the more you understand. So let me ask you, do you know the secret? Have you heard? These verses mentioned for the tenth time the importance of hearing. It's clear to this point that those who draw close to Jesus... Learn to hear and understand the language of God. Do you know the language? Those that draw close to Jesus, Jesus draws close to. What does the evidence of your life prove? Does it prove that you've heard the word and that you desire more of Jesus and are drawing close to Jesus? Or does the evidence prove that the word has gone in one ear and out the other? And that even what you have is being taken from you. Friends, the kingdom of God grows and triumphs. Are you in the kingdom? You can be. Do you know the king? You can. You need only hear his word and come to him by faith. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus of Nazareth is God. He lived the life you should have lived and he offers to you the riches that only he deserves. He died the death that you should have died and took the punishment that you deserved. After three days, he rose from the dead, confirming his identity and affirming his work on the cross as able to make us right with God. Do you know this truth? Do you believe it? Friends, let us rejoice this morning because the tomb is empty. The throne is occupied and the kingdom is growing. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning because even though there is there's much turmoil in the world, there is unruffled triumph in heaven. A peaceful certainty that the gospel will win the day, the nations, and the cosmos. Let the love that you have lavished on us this morning flow through us and out to others. May the gospel prove its resurrection power in turning us further and further from our idols and from ourselves and towards you. May the great hope that you've given us in Jesus, including the hope of a new heaven and a new earth, the promised growth and victory of your kingdom, may these things deepen and lengthen our endurance as we walk in the footsteps of faith in this life. Lord, we ask that you would increase our love for you. And it's in your beautiful name that I pray. Amen.